Okay. The question is, um, when, when we're explaining to, well, to Catholics and to, well, to anybody, uh, our, our belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, uh, what, how do we respond when we say, because we believe, we know that it is Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the consecrated host and the consecrated wine. Uh, so how do we answer the question, well, doesn't that make us cannibals? And while well, I think about an answer, I'm going to let Father answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, a couple things I would say about that. Is in the, the history of the church, that has been a question that uh, was debated for centuries. In, in the beginning of the church, that's really what made people uncomfortable about Catholics, is because they claimed to eat the flesh and drink the blood of this man who they believed was the Messiah. And it caused quite a scandal, including in John chapter 6, when they said, okay, this is a bit weird, we're out of here. Um, but again, Jesus didn't change his teaching because of that. He remained, this is my flesh and this is my blood, and in order to have eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It um, clearly, I mean, we've all experienced going to Holy Communion, uh, and although we do receive the flesh uh, and blood of Jesus, uh, we do not experience it in that way, all right? The uh, Eucharist uh, continues to look, feel, smell, taste like uh, bread and wine, but uh, the reality is that it isn't. Huh? So, I, I guess I, I don't know. I, it's a tough one to explain, like you said. I mean, it's very tough to explain that this is what we believe, but yet it's somehow not the same thing as cannibalism. Um, why don't, do you have anything more to say about it? One of the uh, among the tribes who practice cannibalism, oftentimes the whole idea of cannibalism is to gain power over the, I mean, obviously the person you're eating is dead, but it's a symbolic way also to gain power over them or, and others and so on. Whereas with the Eucharist, we are receiving power from on high. We're re literally receiving Jesus Christ's body blood. The other thing, of course, is he is living and he remains alive uh, through the, the entire process of Holy Communion. Uh, so, but there is a crucial distinction in terms of the frame of mind of a cannibal and that, uh, well, hopefully, uh, that which is a holy communicant. In other words, the holy communicant is receiving out of reverence and adoration, uh, accepting the gift uh, and receiving the, the life of God in the Son of God, whereas the cannibal, it's much more a, 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 an issue of domination and power over another. Another question? Yeah, where does that leave non-Catholics? Father referred to John 6 where Jesus says, uh, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. Uh, so at first glance, it appears that if you don't uh, receive Holy Communion, you cannot be saved. However, Jesus is speaking, as in so many instances, uh, you have to understand the context where that is that Jesus is speaking to those who are already following him. In other words, those who know him or are coming to know him. And so looking, transferring that for us today, we who know about Holy Communion are obliged to receive it. The church says at least once a year we have to receive Holy Communion. Uh, by, by virtue of the fact that we have been told about and given the gift of Holy Communion, we are now obliged to receive. But the church does not and has never understood what Jesus says about the Holy Eucharist to mean that literally if somebody does not receive Holy Communion, they cannot be saved. It's always, the understanding has, has as far as I know, always been that this is for something that once somebody uh, believes in Jesus, accepts him, accepts the teachings of the church, they are then obliged to receive Holy Communion. Um, and it is, I mean, the, the fact that we have it, it is a great gift, obviously. Those who don't re have Holy Communion, we pray that they would come to know Jesus and his church so they can receive this great gift. Uh, we don't really, you have to be careful when we're saying that, well, they don't need it for salvation. It's not as if it's unimportant then, because still, I mean, we know it's an incredible gift that God has given to us and, and that we can embrace and literally adore him in. Anything else? Nothing more to add. Okay. Good job. All right.
Any other questions? Sure. All right. Repeat it. Repeat it. The question is, um, during the last election, um, some priests uh, were not speaking about the abortion issue as forcefully as many people would like. And the question, I think, is more about conscience than anything. The, the, the excuse given why we're not preaching about it is because we don't know their conscience. Huh? They need to follow their conscience. Uh, and your question is, if we're not forming their conscience, how can they follow their conscience? And you, the point you're making is, is very good. Huh? The church teaches us that we have to follow our conscience. But then it says further that the conscience we follow must be formed. Huh? We're only obliged to follow our conscience if our conscience is in accord with what's true. All right? Um, so you're, you're very, very right. Priests do have a responsibility to form the conscience of their parishioners. Huh? Just like any parent is obliged to form the conscience of their children, to teach them right from wrong and how to uh, be a Christian. Okay? That's, that's a responsibility of the parents. And, and the priest, in many senses, is the father of his family, the parish. And so he has a responsibility to form their conscience. And the primary place where that happens is at Mass in preaching. Huh? You know, that's when a priest can teach his family what's right and what's wrong, what followers of Christ should do and how they should act and how they shouldn't act. All right? Now, unfortunately, not everybody agrees with that. All right? that's, that's the hard part. Okay? Um, so those of us who know these things uh, have a responsibility to share that, huh? You know, to challenge those around us who say, well, we have to follow our conscience, and my conscience tells me abortion is okay. Well, try to help them to form their conscience. Huh? Try to help them understand that maybe that's not really what's true, and uh, encourage them to seek the truth about the matter. Um, so, you know, certainly I understand your, your concern, and it's sad that maybe it wasn't talked about when it should have been. Um, I know the vast majority of priests spoke about it, uh, not once, but many times. Huh? Uh, and uh, those priests are to be commended. Huh? And those who didn't, uh, we need to pray for them. Huh? It's very important that we pray for our priests because it's not an easy job. Uh, it's, it's tough to stand in the pulpit and preach the truth when a lot of times it won't be accepted. Uh, so pray for them. That's the most important thing you can do. If you see a priest who's not doing what he should be doing, uh, the correct response is not necessarily to criticize, but to pray. All right? uh, if you're going to complain about a priest to anybody, complain to God. You know? And... and uh, ask him to, to solve the problem. So does that answer your question? Yes. No, and I, uh, unfortunately that, that may be the case in some situations. Again, Oh, certainly. Certainly. No, you know, if, if you have a pastor who you think is not doing what he's supposed to be, express that to him. Huh? Uh, but again, everything in charity. Huh? You know, 
Uh, you know, try to be kind. <laughs> you know, and I know it's tough. I mean, I know it's tough to sometimes be kind. I experience that too. You know. Yes. Well, good. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And just dovetailing on that last thing, I, I found uh, just in, in my experience that when I uh, have encountered a priest or who, who is reluctant, whether it's out of, of fear of, of the opinions of the parishioners or what, they're reluctant, though, to boldly speak the truth, really, and that's an opportunity when we can establish, a, start to establish or, or grow in our relationship with him, get to know him so that we're able then at times to gently, and as you said, charitably, as you did, uh, encourage him to, to preach the truth boldly, to proclaim the gospel boldly uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, the whole, and, and I know you, you spoke to him char charitably, but just more generally, uh, my experience, many times I also get have gotten frustrated and want to uh, sort of get on a priest's case, but it's the whole um, honey versus vinegar principle uh, and, and trying to engage them positively, and I'm just speaking more broadly here. Uh, engage positively is likely to gain more fruits than uh, berating and getting in his face after mass. And again, not that you did that years since, but just my experience more generally. Any other questions? Yes, sir. It's not old. <laughs> The question is, uh, the Catholic practice of abstaining from meat on Fridays, what happened, why do we do it, slash did we do it, what happened to it, why fish and not meat, that sort of, uh, okay. Uh, first of all, um, of course during Lent, we're still encouraged, well, we're still directed to abstain from meat, uh, and, and fish is allowable, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Whereas prior to the reforms uh, after Vatican II, it was every Friday that Catholics uh, were, not allowed, were, were told not to eat meat, directed not to eat meat, uh, so that they could eat their friends' fish sticks at, at school. Uh, well, that wasn't the reason, but it was the nice side benefit, I guess. Uh, a couple of things. One, the, one of the reasons, at least, why the church no longer mandates it all year round, the church hoped, the, the hope of... Uh, the church, the bishops and the pope after the council was that Catholics would be mature enough in their faith where they wouldn't have to be told to abstain from certain things on Fridays, the, the day that we always celebrate our Lord's uh, death on the cross, the, the crucifixion, recall uh, his death on the cross. Uh, if you look at canon law, we are still, Catholics are still obliged to give something up on Fridays. Uh, now, this came as a surprise to me when I heard it as, uh, in college. I never heard that before, but it's true. We're still obliged to make some penitential sacrifice every Friday of the year. We're simply no longer told that it has to be meat. Uh, the church has, in a sense, given us the freedom to choose whatever penitential practice we want, but we're supposed to do one. We're supposed to engage in some penitential practice every Friday. Uh, we're just no longer, it's no longer mandated that, that it be abstinence from meat. Uh, as to the, the reasons why meat and not fish, honestly, I've heard all sorts of, and read all sorts of various answers. So before I give some of them, Father might have a more, conclu do you have a more conclusive? I don't, actually. No conclusive. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, some of the one theories that I've heard, and honestly, I haven't found one that seems to be definite yet, but uh, fish versus meat in terms of their availability, perhaps meat at one time being uh, uh, something more special, uh, you don't get as often, so you shouldn't have something special on Friday. It's sort of, you're giving up something uh, which you sort of love to eat when you're able to. You give it up because of our, remembering our Lord's crucifixion. Fish was a daily, I mean, people ate fish all the time, so giving up fish wouldn't be a big deal, but if you're giving up, uh, you know, filet mignon or something, I mean, th that, that's a bigger deal. That's sort of the idea uh, as far as I can tell. But again, I, I, 
frankly, I don't find that conclusive, but I haven't seen a better theory yet. Why the, the the church? The, this is the, that's a good question. Uh, this is a discipline. Uh, abstinence from meat is a discipline, as opposed to a doctrine, a teaching. So, uh, what we have to abstain from, and how often we have to abstain from it, is something that the church is free to change. Uh, that it can it, it can decide for the good of the souls of the faithful to adapt uh, to change according to time. Uh, and, and location in some instances. Now this is a universal practice. Uh, we have to give up meat on Fridays of Lent now, uh, but, but the, ch the church was able to change that because it's not a matter of teaching. When it comes to disciplines, the church has a good deal of flexibility in, in changing them, again, out of pastoral concern for the welfare of souls. What? <laughs> what happens to the people who are doing time and help on the meat rack? Okay, the question, the question, basically is, and it's a good question. I get this a lot, actually. The question is, prior to the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, it was considered a mortal sin to eat meat on Friday. So what happens to the people who committed this mortal sin died, go to hell, and now all of a sudden it's changed and you don't have to, where, where does that leave them? All right? You know? Now, the, 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 the way that I usually explain this, and you know, you're the doctor of theology, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, all right? The sin of eating meat on Friday when you weren't supposed to is not so much the fact that you ate meat, but that you were disobedient. All right? So, so the sin is not that you ate meat. That's not why you went to hell, if you can phrase it that way. It's because you were disobedient to lawful authority. All right? So today, the same is true. Huh? People who are disobedient run the risk of you know, losing their salvation. Huh? So that's, the, that's, that's where the sin comes into play. So, Many exactly. Things. That, that Many applies to, to all the disciplines of the church that aren't necessarily uh, right. doctrine, but they are disciplines that we're called to be obedient, just as Christ was obedient unto death. Huh? So. And, and again, that's, it's, it's always for the good of our souls. I mean, the, the church doesn't just impose these things on us to be mean to us. Uh, it, it's trying to encourage us, in this case, to engage in a penitential practice, which is always for the welfare of our, our souls, for, for growth and holiness and our spiritual life. That, uh, having to go to Mass every Sunday is uh, a discipline that the church has imposed. Now, for good reason, I think. I mean, speaking at least for myself, I need the grace of the Eucharist at least once a week. I probably could use it a lot more. So I, I, don't, I don't begrudge the church in the least for telling me I have to get to Mass every Sunday because I need the grace of the Mass. Uh, I mean, even if I don't receive Holy Communion, we're not to receive Holy Communion, the grace of the Mass itself uh, is, is necessary for me to, to seek to live a Christian life. But again, that's another uh, discipline. We're obliged to uh, keep holy the Sabbath. The Church has specified that by see, saying that we as Catholics need to attend Mass every Sunday. Question? Me. It would have been. Abstinence from fish before the council was a matter of grave mortal sin. Great matter. How about missing mass on Sunday? Missing mass on Sunday was, remained, grave matter. In other words, uh, part of the conditions for mortal sin. It's not optional. It's not optional, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, pastoral. <laughs> all right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. The question is, what if you're traveling your... I have a flight, the flight gets in late, and you can't get to Mass, all right? Uh, God is reasonable, all right? Yes. So uh, if, honestly, and with all the honesty you can muster, that's the case, okay, then uh, I wouldn't worry about it, all right? If, as we sometimes do, 
we fool ourselves a little bit and we kind of cheat and say, oh, I couldn't get there, but you kind of could have if you would have planned better or if you would have chose a different flight or, you know. Um, we have to be honest with ourselves and with God. Huh? So uh, that's something between you, God, and your confessor. You know, with a lot of these moral questions like that, it's always best to go to confession and talk about it with the priest because he can deal with individuals uh, on an individual case. All right? Good answer. Okay, the question is, if you're with people who aren't Catholic, okay, let's say uh, your family, you're the only Catholic in your family and you're at a family gathering and it's Sunday and they're not going to go to Mass. The question is, do we have a responsibility to walk away from them and say, I have to go to Mass? I would say yes. All right, we have to live our faith boldly. Right. Uh, and, I mean, we look at the martyrs of the early church. If they would have just said, well, I'm with these people. I'm not going to follow Christ. Well. You know, we, we, need to, we need to live our faith with courage and conviction. So I'd say that's something you need to do. Yeah. yeah. Yes? Okay, so we're obligated to go to Mass on Sunday. What's the church's obligation to provide Mass? What do we do in a world when Masses are becoming, you know, less and less frequent? I can remember growing up, you could go to Mass at 6 in the morning and too long, you can't anymore. You know? Okay. Sure. Okay. The question is, we are obliged to go to Mass on Sunday. What's the church's responsibility to provide a Mass for us? Uh, particularly in a time where, uh, especially in a rural diocese like ours, where some churches are closing, it's a long way to get to Mass, uh, or just, you know, time schedule-wise. Um, certainly the church has an obligation to provide the sacraments. All right? That's sort of a basic uh, precept. You as the faithful deserve to have the sacraments. It's your right to have the sacraments provided for you. Um, just as I said, God is reasonable earlier, we have to be reasonable too. Huh? We can't expect uh, priests to be saying Mass 24 hours a day, seven days a week either. You know, it's, uh, we have to, there, there has to be a balance all right, between us being willing to sacrifice a little bit in order to get to Mass, you know, uh, and the, the church trying their best to provide uh, what works best for the people. So it's a balance there. Uh, um, you know, sometimes we have to make sacrifices to okay, follow up. Okay. Do you want to take this one? Sure. Uh, the question is why January 1st this year fell on a Monday. Uh, it was a holy day, but this year it was not a holy day of obligation. The, whenever a solemnity, a ho whenever a holy day, a solemnity, which is normally a holy day of obligation, uh, that where it, where it changes the day of the week because it's fixed to a date as the feast of sole the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, is fixed to January 1st. When a solemnity that's fixed to a date falls on a Saturday or a Monday, the church does not oblige us to attend Mass because it falls on a Saturday or Monday and we already have the Sunday obligation to attend Mass. Now some feel like Christmas this year, the Christmas obligation is never dispensed from because it's the second most holy feast of the year. But the other feasts, not in the top three, well, the top three being Easter Sunday, uh, Christmas and Pentecost. Easter Sunday and Pentecost are always on Sunday, so it's never an issue. Christmas, it be, because it's fixed to the 25th, can rotate. We're always obliged to attend. But the other solemnities, if they fall on a Saturday or Monday, the church, out of concern for the people and the priests, does not oblige Mass to be, uh, oblige us to attend Mass. Out of concern for the people or the priests? Both. Both. But you can... Oh, I, if the question is, wouldn't it make more sense uh, to make January 1st always a holy day as opposed to August 15th when people have to work, the January 1st they don't? It, when the 15th falls on a Saturday or Monday, you don't have to. Yeah, I understand that, but I'm just saying that I just, I can't grasp the logic. 
Well, it's not a matter of not. Do you, did you want to say? No, go ahead. It, it's going. not a matter of it not being. As, I understand your question. It, it's not a matter of it not being as important. The 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 churches recognize. If if you, in my case, for instance, uh, my wife and I have a two and a half year old and eleven month old twins. To get them to church on Sunday and then again on, for Easter morning was not easy. And the, and of course, we're not alone in that way. Where it's it's difficult in some cases for people to get to church two days in a row when they have to. The church is just trying to be generous in that way. Now, when it falls, usually when it falls during the week, besides Monday or Saturday, you've got the vigil mass the night before, a mass during the day, and then a mass in the evening. So the church is still trying to uh, do what it can to allow people time to attend. Again, I think as Father said, you know, there's got to be a little bit of recognition of, of us doing the best we can to get there and, and the individual parishes doing what they can to offer a mass schedule that works for people. Good questions, though. Yeah. Did you want to answer? Sure. The, the, the question, the, the, her question is, what, you know, wouldn't it be great to start off the new year with going to Mass, even though it's on a Monday. Huh? And uh, I agree. Okay, I agree. And my answer to that, I think I heard the Mass, there was Mass anyway. It's, we didn't cancel Masses on that day, that you can't go to Mass because, uh, you, know, you know, so you can still go to Mass even though you don't have to go to Mass, just like any day of the week, right? You can go to Mass every day, you don't have to, but you can if you want, okay? Um, I'm just going to say a little bit more on this whole topic because I share your struggles with you. This is one of the things that I question myself is, well, golly, you know, maybe the church should challenge us and say, hey, let's step up to the plate here, folks. Let's, let, let's do this wholeheartedly. Huh? Um, and I also struggle with that. I, some of you might know this, but some of you might not. In other parts of the world, there are other days that are holy, holy days of obligation that we don't have in the United States such as the Feast of St. Joseph, the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. Uh, in most of the world, those are holy days of obligation, but they're not in the United States. And part of me says, well, I mean, what are we, some sort of weak Catholic, you know, chickens or something that we can't go to Mass on these days, you know? And I struggle with that because I want to, I want to challenge people to step up to the plate and really live their faith. So I, I identify with your struggles. Uh, the bishops are much wiser than me, all right? Uh, and um, so if, if that's where they're leaning, then I'm going to say, okay, uh, we're going to do what you say, but you can still go to Mass on those days. You know, there's nothing, nothing keeping us from going. Sure. I, okay. The, the, the question is, um, the origins of Holy Days of Obligation was to uh, give the people a day off, all right? Because in that era, in the Middle Ages, uh, the church was a little more prominent. Uh, if the church said, listen, you got to go to church, no work, all right? A holy day, you don't work. Uh, and so these days were sort of chosen as times where they could get off, so they didn't they weren't laboring quite so hard, which is always nice. We always like a day off. Um, the question is, obviously, the current situation is not that way, especially in the United States. Huh? Everybody still has to go to work on uh, the Feast of the Assumption. Huh? So if I'm understanding your question right, it's sort of two ways. Why, why can't we take current holidays and make them holy days of obligation, like secular holidays? Or you well, 
Days when people don't work. Okay. Okay. Your, the, the answer to your question, I think, um, can only be understood when we look at the entire church. All right. The church is bigger than the church in the United States. All right. A couple years ago, I was in Rome on January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany. Nothing was open. Everything was closed. It was a holy day. You don't work on a holy day. All right. So in many places of the world, it still exists that way. We as American workaholics and in a society that's secular, okay, a secular society, they don't want to recognize that. Huh? So in some countries, there's more of a tension there. Okay? In other countries that's, that are a little more rooted in their faith, it's the way it was originally. They don't work. But we had a family-owned business which always closed on holy days until Catholic schools started having school on holy days, and we said, okay. Yes. If the church okay. Yes, I, I, I agree with you on that one, all right? The, you know, why, the, the, the question is, well, then why, doesn't, why don't Catholic schools not have school on holy days? Why are church offices still open on holy days? Okay, I happen to be of the opinion that we should. We should live our Catholic faith. And if, if we believe that this holy day is like a Sunday, then we shouldn't be working, huh? You know, God willing, I've ever made a pastor, which maybe will never happen. I don't know. It's up to the bishop. Uh, if I'm ever made a pastor, one of the things I want to do is say, listen, it's a holy day. The office is closed. All right? Just to sort of show people that we take it seriously. We take this very, very seriously. When I was in the seminary, we never had school. We never had classes on holy days of obligation. And it, w it was great. You could really make it a holy day. Uh, so I, I agree with you on that. I, I, I think you're on the right track. Okay, the question about the church providing uh, masses uh, for people, uh, the question is, aren't priests uh, regulated on how many masses they can say a day? Yes. Uh, canon law uh, and particular law within various dioceses, it changes a little bit, but the universal law is a priest says mass once a day. Uh, he can say it twice. Uh, if pastoral necessity provides, okay, like let's say you have a funeral and you have your daily mass. Well, there's a pastoral necessity. You can say mass twice or a wedding or, or if it's Sunday in a big parish, all right? Three times you can say mass with the bishop's permission, okay? In some dioceses, especially a diocese like ours where there are some parishes that need to have three masses on a Sunday, every Sunday because of the number of people and the size of the building, huh? Uh, sometimes uh, you don't need to ask the bishop's permission. Uh, you can just assume that he would give it and, and, and do it. But no more than three. You can't say mass more than three times. So in some places, that can become a problem. Uh, so yes, you know, a priest may have to say, listen, we can only have two masses on this day. That's all we can do. Huh? And the reason for this, uh, the, the, the origin of regulating how many masses a priest can say comes out of the fact that uh, there are mass stipends, you know that, uh, offerings that someone will make uh, to the priest to have mass said for their loved one. Huh? Uh, it prevents the priest from saying 25 masses a day so he can make more money. And uh, yet at one point in the history of the church, that was a problem. Huh? You know, priests were in it for the money. All right? We're obviously not anymore. So, uh, so that's, that's why that's there. Huh? Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. Any other questions? Yep, I know. I won't forget. In the back? What's the significance of First Fridays? Uh, First Fridays is a devotional practice uh, originating because Friday being the day of the week when our Lord died a devotional practice that uh, I'm not sure when it originated, centuries ago, where the first Friday of every month you would attend Mass and pray uh, for a series of, I think, nine... Uh, it comes Friday. out of the apparitions of our Lord to St. Margaret Mary. Yeah, the apparitions of our Lord to St. Margaret Mary. That's right. Thank you, Father. Mm -hmm. uh, 
just something that developed a, a good devotional practice, like so many other devotions, uh, arose, in this case, to remember in particular our Lord's suffering and death. There was a written question, uh, questions submitted rather, and I'm going to bring up one of them now, and then we'll go back to the ones that you have. What's the church's beliefs on the end times and the Antichrist? How close does it come, the church come? Uh, in what it believes, to what some Protestants teach about the tribulation, the Antichrist, the rapture, and the second coming of Christ. Uh, second coming of Christ is held, well, the coming of Christ at the end of time is held by all Christians. Uh, it is the second coming. Uh, that is also when the rapture will happen. There will not be a rapture prior to the second coming. If there were, then we'd have three comings. The incarnation, the rapture, and the end of time. Uh, now, when you point this out to people who believe in the rapture, they, well, no, because Jesus just comes invisibly to save the saved in the rapture. Yeah, but he still comes. I mean, those who believe in the rapture believe that Jesus comes. Uh, so that's sort of a little incongruency, I guess, in the rapture belief. But the passages in the New Testament that speak about the rapture, it's always in the context of the end of time, when the dead will be raised, uh, all those who are, who are going to heaven will be raised, and those who are going to be damned will be raised as well. Uh, the, the Antichrist, we do believe, the, the church believes that it is in the Catechism, uh, that while there are very, there, there's the spirit of the Antichrist throughout history, at the end of time there will be one figure who is worse than all the predecessors, basically. Uh, it, throughout history, for instance, in the first century, Nero, the Emperor Nero, who first persecuted the Christians, was seen as a small a antichrist. Uh, and other figures throughout history have been seen as small a antichrist. But the church does believe that there will be a capital A antichrist at the end of time. Uh, a human being, a man, um, but who nonetheless will so embody evil in a sense that he will be deserving of the capital A uh, antichrist. Uh, the tribulation, end of time, uh, we, we usually, the tribulation is, is, and there are all sorts of, there's pre, mid, post, millennialism and all these different things. Uh, the church believes that there will be, as there has been throughout history, suffering on the part of the church, persecution of the church. There's persecution of the church today. Maybe not blatantly so in our country, but China uh, most of the Muslim nations, you cannot worship publicly. And by publicly, I mean uh, having a church. Churches are illegal uh, in Saudi Arabia, for instance. So the church is persecuted. Uh, and, and there will be, at the end of time, a, a greater persecution. That is the tribulation. But there is no rapture before or during the tribulation. The rapture, again, is at the very end. Uh, I have a question. Yes. Are we living in the end times? Are we living in the end times? How many of you think we're living in the end times? How many of you think we're not living in the end times? We are living in the end times. Do you know when the end times began? When Jesus was crucified. Biblically speaking, the end time, the, 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 what's called the eschaton, technically, the, the, the end times began when, G when Jesus came. In the fullness of time, God sent his only begotten son, as St. Paul tells us. So we've been living, the, 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 end, the end times is the age of the church, uh, which began when Jesus came and, and then established the church. Uh, it was born from his side on, 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 at the crucifixion. And then Pentecost, of course, we see it really uh, coming to life, so to speak. That's when the end times began. Now then we talk about the end of time, uh, speaking of the final judgment and the second coming and so on. Obviously, that's not happening now, but we are living in the end times. Very kind good of a question. trick question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and there's more here, but I'll come back to those. Any other questions, though, right now? Um, well, first of all, just to know, Christ the King offices are closed on holy days. Hallelujah. Days so full that it's not an 
in the Bishop's Bulletin, and yet we got four people there. So what can be done? Even all of you that are here tonight, I mean, where's everybody at when we have things in the church that is where your heart is, where your treasure is? So I want to go to church. I want to go to church on application. I want to go to church on Sunday because I'm involved in a lot of other things in the church besides going on Sunday. So how can we get people involved in, in other things? Yeah, what is your answer to this so question? <laughs> Okay, um, a couple things. Couple things I, I I would say about What's this. What's the question? The, the question is basically, what can we do to uh, get priests to get excited about some of the extracurricular activities, so to say, in the church, uh, and um, how can we get people to come to those things? Okay, uh, couple things. Um, first of all, how can we get people to come to them? All right. The answer to that lies, I believe, not so much in the priests, but in uh, the laity. Okay? Uh, the priest, uh, as I mean, I can tell you from experience, and those of you who've been around priests, we're busy. We have a million different things to do every day. We can't do everything. All right? We also have to be careful that Mass doesn't become announcement time. Okay, where at Mass, you know, we take 25 minutes and say, okay, there's a Bible study, there's this, there's that, the death, 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 death. Um, I think, and I, I think this is really how we, we change the world, is you all come to church, you hear the truth, hopefully from priests who are excited about the truth, okay, we equip you to go out and spread the gospel, all right? The, the documents of the, the Second Vatican Council, particularly the one about the laity, is very clear about this. Huh? It's the laity's job to be out in the world evangelizing. The priest's realm is in the church. He, the people, all of you come to church and we teach you. We give you the tools you need to go out into the world and to spread the good news. All right? So, um, and a lot of times that's not understood. People just expect the priest to go out into the world and, and, and convert everyone. And that's not sort of the vision of the church. The vision of the church is that you guys are out there talking about your faith at work and with the people that you meet every day and, and, and teaching them by example. I always like to say that, you know, as far as evangelization, it has to be you. Because if you were with a group of your friends at a restaurant, talking about matters of faith and morality and I walked in, it would become quiet really fast. I mean, it would, all right? But they won't with you, right? You can talk to your friends in a way that I never could, all right? So if, if, if we want to get people involved in some of these movements in the church, it has to come from you, all right? And granted, there's a value to me standing up in the pulpit and say, listen, there's a coin in the eye. I want you all to go as parishioners, all right? But when it comes right down to it, if you're going to Koinonia and your life shows it and you're happy, they're going to say, I want what you want. I, I want what you have. And it's you that's going to get them there, not me. All right? So that's sort of my thoughts on that. It's, it's really the, the laity are the ones who have to transform and energize the church. It, it, it just has to be that way. And I just want to echo and reiterate what he said at the end uh, about our life and, and living it. Uh, there's an article I read once uh, written, it, it was as if a letter written to a bishop on what he can do to increase vocations in his diocese. And the first thing that the author, uh, a theologian, said is that the first thing you can do is become canonized in the future, meaning that he lives a holy life now. Holy bishops uh, are Becoming holy is the greatest thing a bishop can do in terms of, of generating priests, as we can see in our diocese. Uh, same thing is true for this. But by living out our faith intensely, uh, we become attractive to others who are in, in any way open to our, the faith. 
and, and that will attract them. And you know, what's going on with this person? Why are they the way they are? And it's not, you know, happy beatitude. I mean, joy, delight, not happy, happy, you know, walking around, you know, it's just, <laughs> the people are going to be like, let's call the guys with the white jackets. It's, it's, it's but, but a profound, you can see that in people. I mean, we can, we know people like that. We all know people like that who just, they, they're, they're more real. And the saints are the most real people who have lived and who live. Uh, and, and if we do that, and then be willing, and this is always the, and that's sort of easy for Catholics to hear. The harder thing for Catholics to hear is, and now and then actually say something to people. Uh, you know, it's hard for us as Catholics to, even with our friends, sometimes it's hardest with our friends and family, uh, but them and others to be willing to say, you know, hey, there's this Bible study or whatever. Do you want to come? I mean, inviting people to come to things rather than hoping they'll read about it in the bulletin and want to come. I mean, actually saying something verbally with our mouth and lips um, is, is something we have to do, uh, be willing to do. Any other questions? Question? <laughs> limbo is in limbo. Uh, limbo has really always been in limbo. Uh, the doctrine of limbo is uh, a te well, an explanation which was given for centuries to try to understand what might happen to primarily unbaptized babies who die. What happens to them? The church teaches that you have to be baptized to go to heaven, uh, but they never committed any actual sins. They had original sin, never actual sins, though, because they never got old enough. So what happened to them? And for centuries, theologians uh, posited that, the, that perhaps there was a state of perfect earthly happiness, like the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. And those who died before they attained the age of reason and were unbaptized would go to this place, which was called limbo. The church never formally, officially, taught the doctrine of limbo. Oftentimes, you have to understand that there's what the church teaches, and then there's how we priests and theologians try to explain that sometimes and, and sort of connect the dots. A lot of times, people think that the connecting of the dots that priests and theologians do is formal church teaching. That's not necessarily the case. And limbo is one of those instances where it wasn't. Uh, limbo is, has never been formally taught by the church. Today, the church is just being clear about that fact and saying that, you know, we don't know, but we, don't know, we do know that our God is a loving Father, a merciful Father, and we, we can hope that unbaptized babies make their way to heaven because we have a loving Father. That's something we pray and hope about, but we don't know. Limbo has never formally been taught, by the way, is sort of the parenthetical conclusion. Anything else? Yep, that's good. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. The question is, how do you teach the Trinity to kids? And I'm in adult faith formation, not uh, children's faith formation. So I'll go like this. The Trinity is a mystery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, end. <laughs> uh, you know, is there an easy way to explain it? Absolutely not. Um, most priests will tell you that on Trinity Sunday, they dread preaching. Because how do you explain the Trinity to anyone in five minutes <laughs> it, it's 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 we don't know I mean it's 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 God can we explain God no we are we're human beings uh, we have finite minds we, we can't comprehend it um, one God in three persons that's what we know <laughs> yes. uh, you know I mean yeah we looked, the reason we know there's a trinity is because Jesus said, I am God, and yet he referred to the Father, who's also God, as a distinct person, someone else. And then the same is true with the Spirit. So I think it's just going, looking to what Jesus said. You know, we, we don't, because God is God and infinite, we have finite minds. Of course, we won't use these words with kids, but, you know, translate it into their language. Uh, we can't fully understand who God and what God is, but we do know that somehow within God, there is one what and three who's. 
one, three who's. Jesus refers to the Father as somebody else, but, they're, but the Father and Jesus are both the one God. There's not three gods. There's not one God with different masks. He doesn't put on the Father mask and the Son mask. That's a heresy from the early church. Uh, we don't know how to fully understand that, but we, we know that in God there are three persons, three who's, but one what? One divine nature, three persons, as Father said. Any other questions? Yes? How do, How do you differentiate between mortal sin and irregular sin? And while well, Father consults the catechism, that's actually a very good question. And, and what I want to do first is just define for you, uh, you may already all know here, but uh, what, what is mortal sin? A mortal sin has, for something to be mortally sinful, there are three conditions. First of all, it has to be grave matter. It has to be serious, and that's, I think, where really, that gets to the heart of your question. It has to be something serious. Uh, secondly, you have to know what you're doing and that it's wrong. And thirdly, you have to do it freely. In order to commit a mortal sin, all three conditions need to be there. So to take the example of, uh, that we talked about before, missing Mass on Sunday, um, say, say, for whatever reason, I don't know it's Sunday. I just pretend that I don't know it. <laughs> Uh, if I really truly don't, not a, if we really don't know that it's Sunday, if I somehow I you know I've been studying for finals all week, lose track of time, whatever. It somehow where where I'm, ex, how do I say this? It's not my fault. Somehow I don't know how that worked, but just go with me. I don't know it's Sunday, therefore I, it's not. I miss mass, but it's not a mortal sin because I lacked the knowledge. Uh, now. In the real world, the example I just gave is going to be highly unlikely, but it's just an example where you lack knowledge or you lack freedom. Say you're compelled to do something wrong. You don't choose to. You're, you're forced by somebody, truly forced. And again, we're not just excusing ourselves, but you're truly forced to do something which is grave matter, seriously sinful. It's not a mortal sin because you're not doing it out of freedom. You don't choose to do it. Say, uh, yeah, say you're, you know, well, no, I'm not going to give another crazy example. I'll just leave it at that. The, but the question comes back, so how do you differentiate, though? What's the difference between something which is gravely sinful and something which isn't? And that's actually not an easy answer to question. Uh, anybody? Okay. <laughs> an easy question to answer. Uh, when you lose, ultimately a mortal sin is, all right, Father wants to answer. <laughs> okay, what, what, the way I'm going to talk about this is what does mortal sin do to us and what does venial sin do to us, okay? Mortal sin destroys charity within us, okay? Another way of talking about that is uh, this is how I talk to kids about it, all right? So don't be offended if it sounds a little low, but a mortal sin is when you commit a sin so grave that you kick God out of your heart, okay? God lives in our heart, right? We know that, the indwelling of the Trinity. When we commit a mortal sin, we're saying, yeah, I really don't need you to get out. I'm just going to do this anyway, okay? The Catechism says it's a total turning away from God, huh? It's an about face from God, all right? A total turning away from him. All right? It's serious. We're rejecting God when we commit a mortal sin, and that's pretty serious. All right? And that's why it destroys charity within us. Huh? Uh, a venial sin is a sin that offends God, but it's not so serious that it's a complete turn away from God, maybe a partial turning away from God. Huh? Mortal sin is a total turning away from God, a partial turning away from God, all right? So, let's say we die in a state of mortal sin where we are completely turned away from God, we are completely rejecting Him, okay? At death, that becomes an eternal decision. For all eternity, we will be rejecting God, all right? That's tough. <laughs> we all know what that means, huh? So, we don't want to do that. All right? We want to avoid mortal sin. If we fall into mortal sin, we know God's merciful. We go to confession. 
Huh? Venial sin, we die in a state of venial sin, we're sort of partially turned away from God. Huh? That's sort of the case of all of us all the time, right? We're never totally, perfectly united to God and following him. Huh? Um, so that's why we have purgatory, thanks be to God. Amen. Huh? Uh, that's why we can be purified from our sins when we haven't totally rejected God after death. All right, does that make sense? Questions back to that, that answer your question? Okay. Next. One more. One more. Okay, um, the question is, uh, purgatory, according to the church, is a place where the temporal punishment due to sin is washed away, it's purged. Um, if that's the case, then how the, then it seems like God forgives but doesn't forget because there's still something left, okay? Uh, let's look at the term temporal punishment due to sin, okay? Temporal punishment. Uh, implies time, huh? this world, all right? There are consequences to our actions, all right? Um, the classic example, uh, you're a kid, you're playing baseball, you throw the baseball, it goes through the window, okay? You go to your father, you say, I'm sorry, you cry a little bit, you know, you're really sorry you broke the window. He says, listen, son, I forgive you, okay? But there's still a broken window, all right? Um, it's not that he didn't forgive the son. He forgives the son. But there's still a broken window. Somebody's going to have to fix the window. Huh? Our sin has consequences that are not necessarily particular to us. When we sin, we harm the entire body of Christ. All right? Every time we sin, we pull the rest of us down. Huh? So there's, there's more to our sin than just us. God can forgive us, but then say, but look, you hurt that person that person, that person, the balance needs to come back huh? somehow. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, so isn't that a but at the end of unconditional forgiveness? The, the other, I, I think what Father said about punishment being uh, the key word, temporal punishment, distance, it's, a, it's not just in others, it's in me too. I mean, the sin is forgiven, but it's still, like if, if I've fallen uh, into, uh, and, Pick any any seri any sin, uh, serious or otherwise. If I've lived that sin, especially routinely, committed it routinely, I've fostered a vice in myself, and that vice needs to be cleansed away from me before I can enter heaven. It's not it's not as if God imposes a punishment on us. It's there's a sinful inclination with me which I have deeply fostered. When I go when, when the priest absolves me from from my sins, the actions which I've committed have been forgiven, but. I can tell you, quite honestly, that I am not a saint when I come out of the confessional, and none of us are. There's still those sinful inclinations which, which we're not culpable for in the sense that we can't confess our desires, but those desires need to be corrected. And that's what purgatory is. The, the traditional language is just what you said. Uh, it, it, it's the, the, where we're forgiven or we're cleansed of the temporal punishment due to sin. To me, the, the way that it's easier to understand, the way to express it, it's easier to understand, our sinful desires are cleansed away in purgatory uh, because they're not necessarily cleansed away while we're here on earth, so they need to be cleansed before we enter heaven. Uh, and that, to me, and because I, I completely understand, it seems like, well, why is God only partially forgiving us? Well, when you understand really that what temporal, the temporal punishment is in terms of the, the sinful inclination that it fosters in me, that needs to be wiped, cleansed away. And that's something which we can do during this earth. But if we don't, it still needs to happen, even though the action we've committed has been forgiven. And by the way, the last theology on tap, I, I spoke about purgatory, and you can check, the, I'm speaking generally here, all the theology and taps in the past can be checked out from our library for free or listened to online or downloaded off online from the Prairie Rome Companion podcast.
FYI. Okay, that was the last question. Um, I want to thank you for coming. Father's going to close with a blessing. But again, the next Theology and Tap is in March. And Father and I will both he be here for a little bit in case anybody has questions that they didn't get a chance to ask. For thanks, so thanks for coming and have a great evening. Father, bless you. All right, why don't we stand for the blessing? Let us call upon the great Mother of God, Mary Most Holy, as we pray together. Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is with, with thee. thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for coming.